Well, good morning and uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Roger Pilan. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for today's symposium. This is our 14th annual Constitution Day Symposium. Uh, once again this year, we've got a full program uh, for you coming up, uh, and uh, we will be reviewing the big decisions of the courts uh, last term, and then reviewing the uh, cases coming ahead. And of course, we'll conclude with uh, Cato's 14th annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture in Constitutional Thought, which will be given by uh, Professor Stephen Calabresi of Northwestern University. Uh, you all, uh, if you want to have a more detailed look at the cases, uh, both that were decided last term and are coming up, you of course can read about them in the new Cato Supreme Court Review, uh, which has just come out and which you picked up on your way in. And I'm happy to say that that uh, has just gone up uh, at our website, so you can uh, download any of the essays, if you wish, right from our website. We hold this symposium each year uh, to mark uh, the day 228 years ago uh, when America's founders concluded their work in Philadelphia and sent the document they'd just uh, written out to the states for ratification, uh, reflecting a vision of liberty through limited government uh, that they'd first set forth 11 years earlier in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution sought to establish a more perfect union. Much has happened in the intervening 228 years, of course, uh, some of it very good, such as the Civil War amendments, uh, which completed the Constitution in an important sense. Uh, some of it not so good, uh, like the major reinterpretations of the document that took place during the New Deal, uh, the evisceration of the doctrine of enumerated powers, the bifurcation of the Bill of Rights, giving us bifurcated theory of judicial review, and the elimination of the non-delegation doctrine, which has given us the modern executive state that we know and love so well today. Uh, the um, idea of limited government, in other words, took a great hit in the New Deal constitutional revolution. And uh, the critique of that constitutional inversion has animated our work here at the Center for Constitutional Studies from its inception and will be a constant theme in our discussions here today. To give you an overview of the program, let me introduce the man who's largely responsible for putting it together and for editing the review uh, you have in your hands, Ilya Shapiro, who will moderate the first panel. Uh, Ilya is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at Cato. He's the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review and the coordinator of Cato's highly regarded amicus brief program. He's a graduate of Princeton, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School. After law school, he clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And then he uh, served with Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb uh, here in Washington. Just before joining Cato, uh, Ilya served as a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues. Uh, he's published widely as a frequent guest on radio and TV, and he lectures at law schools around the country. And I'm pleased to say that just this week, the Legal Times has named Elia one of DC's 40 rising stars under 40. Congratulations.
Of course, I wrote the letter for him, the letter of recommendation. And, and those of you who know Ilya will not be surprised to learn that he uh, had no reservations whatsoever with helping me to write that letter. <laughs> I'll now turn the program over to Ilya. I'll return after lunch uh, to moderate our second panel and then again at the conclusion of our program to introduce uh, Professor Calabrese. So please welcome rising star Ilya Shapiro. The problem with being a rising star is that implicates that uh, you haven't really done much, but people expect a lot of you, so it puts a lot of pressure on you. We'll see what ha happens with that. Um, I should announce that uh, those of you who are live tweeting or otherwise on devices while you're, uh, while you're watching or, or uh, uh, following along, the network is Cato. The password uh, for Wi-Fi is Give Me Liberty, with uh, each of those words capitalized. Uh, and the hashtag uh, for you live tweeters is CatoSCR15. All right. Well, this is the uh, 14th. Roger took my volume. Uh, this is the 14th volume uh, of the Cato Supreme Court Review, uh, the nation's first uh, in-depth critique uh, of the Supreme Court's term just ended, plus a look at the term ahead. We release this in conjunction with our Constitution Day conference uh, every year, less than three months after the term ends, uh, and two weeks before the next one begins. And we're proud of the speed with which we produce this. We ask leading scholars and practitioners to produce thoughtful, reasonable, uh, readable commentary of serious length on short deadlines. So I'm grateful that so many agree to my unreasonable demands. Uh, and of its accessibility, at least so far as the court's opinions allow. Um, I'm particularly proud that this isn't a typical law review whose submission's esoteric prolixity is matched only by their footnotes' abstruseness. Uh, instead, this is a book intended for everyone from lawyers and judges to educated laymen and interested citizens. Uh, we run a tight ship here. You're, the program is in your schedule. We will be starting and ending on time. Uh, this, the first panel will start uh, immediately after I finish this introduction. Then we'll have lunch, uh, three more panels, uh, and the Simon Lecture. So pay attention to the schedule in your um, uh, materials. Many thanks to David Lampo and the publication and arts design team, uh, Linda Asu and the conference team, Anthony Grusdis, who previously worked as a corporate paralegal, uh, who's now the uh, assistant, the research uh, assistant to the Center for Constitutional Studies. So he has special skills in dealing with both uh, hot-headed lawyers uh, and clerk's offices. And as a bonus, he's also a star on the Cato All-Star team. So we have our priorities straight here at the center. Uh, our interns and associates, none of this could happen without any of these people, without all of these people. Uh, I re reiterate our hope that this collection of essays will secure and advance the Madisonian first principles of our Constitution, uh, giving renewed voice to the framers' fervent wish that we have a government of laws and not of men. In so doing, we hope also to do justice. What was that? Oh, the light went out. My thoughts, I, I, I wasn't even saying anything controversial. Oh. Um, uh, anyway, uh, the, uh, the rich legal tradition, right, that uh, protects the natural right to life, liberty, uh, and property and serves as a bulwark against the abuse 
of government power. Actually, I guess the light uh, burnt out when Michael walked in, so that might have some indication of what we're uh, set for. Actually, yesterday we hosted uh, Elizabeth Warren. I saw some tweets that uh, people were wondering whether she would burst into flame upon crossing the threshold into Cato, but apparently all went well. Uh, in these heady times when the people are demanding government accountability and an end to unconstitutional actions of various kinds, uh, and anger is afoot, real, huge anger, at where the political class has taken us. It's more important than ever to remember our proud roots in the Enlightenment tradition. Our first panel is, in my mind, the statutory interpretation panel, even though certainly other panels will cover cases that turn on interpreting statutes. But it's this panel that really shows competing methods of statutory interpretation and construction. The obvious difference here is between textualists, those who look at the four corners of the relevant law, and purposivists, who try to discern the real purpose of the legislation, even if you have to fudge the literal meaning of the text a bit. Now, that may seem like some academic debate that doesn't mean a whole lot when the rubber hits the road, but as it turns out, it's often the whole ballgame, uh, to mix metaphors. Uh, and not just in hyper-technical cases involving some obscure corner of the bankruptcy code. Indeed, this debate played out in two of the three biggest cases of the term. King v. Burwell, regarding the IRS's authority to provide tax credits or subsidies to people who buy health insurance from the federal exchange under Robert's care. Uh, and Michigan v. EPA, regarding the EPA's duty to consider the costs of its regulations before it issues them. Now, the big case not involving statutory interpretation is, of course, Obergefell versus Hodges, about which we'll hear after lunch. Uh, and it also played out in the most memorable criminal law case of the term, Yates versus United States, where the court grappled with the slippery issue of whether a fish is a tangible object. Uh, what's more, these cases have in common more than this battle of uh, interpretive theories. Uh, they also exemplify an executive branch run amok. In King, the IRS took it upon itself to, adapt, uh, to adopt a more politically advantageous interpretation of the Affordable Care Act. In Michigan, the EPA really wanted to regulate greenhouse gases. Congressional opposition be damned. Uh, and in Yates, federal prosecutors decided that discretion is for losers. Uh, and actually, what happened here, you might recall the case of Bond versus United States a couple of terms ago, where a woman used some uh, household chemicals to try to injure her erstwhile best friend who had been having a, an affair with her husband. Your typical case of uh, federalism, uh, uh, adultery, and chemical weapons, right? Well, that prosecutor uh, was transferred from Philadelphia and now went to the Gulf Coast. We'll uh, hear about that case. Anyway, here to look at these cases and perhaps show how they do or don't fit into this theme uh, are three people who know a lot about the uses and abuses of executive administrative power. Their full bios are in your packet, so I am just going to provide a brief sketch. First, we'll have my colleague uh, Michael Cannon, who is Cato's Director of Health Policy Studies and is possibly the uh, only person at Cato who uh, is more late than I am for, for events. Uh, Michael has been descri described as an influential healthcare wonk by the Washington Post, Obamacare single most relentless antagonist by the New Republic, the man who could bring down Obamacare by Vox, and Obamacare's fiercest critic. He's published widely, appears regularly on a host of media outlets. Among his accolades is a JM degree in law and economics from George Mason. Uh, in other words, he's not a lawyer, but he plays one on TV. 
most importantly, for our purposes, he was one of the intellectual godfathers behind King V. Burwell, uh, which he wrote about in the review and about which he'll be speaking today. Thank you, Ilya. I'm not worried about the uh, that light bulb. I bring my own illumination with me. Um, and I want to thank all of you for being here, um, especially Professor Adler, my uh, partner in crime fighting on uh, for, for the past three or four years on King v. Burwell and related cases. So King v. Burwell is an administrative law and statutory interpretation case that asks the question, whether the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act authorizes the IRS to issue premium assistance tax credits for the purchase of health insurance through exchanges established by the federal government. Despite statutory language authorizing those subsidies only, quote, through an exchange established by the state, the Internal Revenue Service claimed the Affordable Care Act authorizes tax credits in federally established exchanges as well, and in 2014 began issuing billions of dollars of tax credits in the 38 states with federal exchanges. Now, don't be fooled by the boring exterior. King v. Burwell is actually an extremely consequential and even historic case. Uh, King is not just about whether the IRS is spending taxpayer money illegally. It's also about whether the IRS is imposing illegal taxes on 70 to 100 million Americans. Simply offering tax credits in those 38 states had the effect of subjecting 70 million or more individuals and employers in those states to the Affordable Care Act's individual and employer mandates. Several of those individuals and employers filed King and three similar cases challenging those taxes and the subsidies that trigger them. It's also fair to say that the entire ACA hung in the balance. Without those subsidies, 10 million or so people who bought ACA coverage through federal exchanges would face the full cost of the ACA's health insurance regulations, which would cause millions of them to drop that coverage, the regulatory scheme to collapse, and Congress to reopen the law. Rather than implement the law as Congress wrote it, the IRS effectively rewrote the, uh, and expanded the ACA, claiming the power to tax nearly 100 million people, despite clear statutory language saying it could not. The IRS cited no statutory authority or even any legislative history in support of its decision. Uh, indeed, as, it, as will become clear, the IRS claimed this power despite abundant evidence that Congress intended to use financial incentives to encourage states to implement various parts of the ACA and despite the fact that there is absolutely no evidence in either the ACA or its legislative history that any member of Congress believed or intended the ACA would offer tax credits in federal exchanges. Lest, lest you think this is just one guy talking, all nine Supreme Court justices admitted as much. Writing for a six-justice majority, Chief Justice John Roberts agreed with the plaintiffs, writing, quote, the most natural reading of this pertinent statutory phrase, end quote, is that tax credits are available, quote, only through an exchange established by the state, quote, uh, end quote. The majority agreed with the plaintiffs that the ACA def even defines state in a manner, quote, that does not include the federal government. And the court implicitly acknowledged that this was the only place Congress spoke directly to whether the IRS had authority to issue tax credits in federal exchanges. Neither the government nor the court presented any evidence from either the statute or its legislative history where any member of Congress indicated they believed or intended the ACA would offer tax credits in federal exchanges. And the three dissenting justices agreed with the majority on all of these points. Now let's pause and consider what it means that the entire Supreme Court agreed that the operative language of the ACA was clear on the question presented. 
First, it means first that Congress enacted a law whose operative language gives states the power to block exchange subsidies, the employer mandate, and to a large extent, the ACA's ind individual mandate. Just as Congress gave states the power to block the ACA's Medicaid expansion, a uh, power that the Supreme Court in NFIB versus Sebelius made it easier for states to use. Number two, the, it, it, uh, the operative text therefore gives states the power to force Congress to reopen the ACA. Blocking those premium subsidies would expose 10 million uh, exchange enrollees to the full cost of the ACA's health insurance regulations. If enrollees saw the full cost of those regulations, the ACA would be politically unsustainable, and Congress would be forced to open it for major revisions or even to repeal it. Number three, states wanted to use that power to force Congress to reopen the ACA. Widespread, deep, and long-standing political opposition to the ACA led to wave elections of ACA opponents at the state level in 2010, 2011. And two, ultimately, two-thirds of the states refused to establish a health insurance exchange. Many of those states even filed briefs on behalf of the King plaintiffs because they wanted to use their power to force Congress to reopen this law. And number four, the IRS's decision to disregard Congress's clear instructions effectively robbed state officials of a power Congress granted them and disenfranchised the voters who put those state officials in office for the purpose of blocking the ACA. Uh, the IRS's decision also increased federal taxing and borrowing and spending by hundreds of billions of dollars to benefit one side of what may be the most contentious and divisive or, uh, domestic policy debate of our time. You might think that this would be a perfect opportunity for Chief Justice Roberts to reiterate what he said in his confirmation hearing in 2005, when he said, quote, if the text is clear, that is what you follow, and that's binding. Or what he wrote in the last major Obamacare case in 2012, NFIB v. Sebelius, where he wrote, quote, it is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. Or you might think that the King majority would reiterate the rule that five of them laid out last year in a case called Michigan v. Bay Mills Indian Community. Quote, rejecting a similar argument that a statutory anomaly made not a whit of sense, we explained in one recent case that Congress wrote the statute it wrote meaning a statute going so far and no further. This court has no roving license, even in ordinary cases of statutory interpretation, to disregard clear language simply on the view that Congress must have intended something broader. Congress should make the call, and the court should accept Congress's judgment. We will not rewrite Congress's handiwork. Unfortunately, all five justices who endorsed this rule of judicial deference and restraint in Bay Mills one year ago completely abandoned it in King. Chief Justice Roberts, writing for a six-justice majority, acknowledged the operative text authorized tax credits only, that's his word, only through an exchange established by the state. And he implicitly conceded that no other part of the ACA or its legislative history spoke directly to the question presented. But Roberts nonetheless ruled against the plaintiffs, explaining, quote, petitioners' arguments about the plain meaning of Section 36B are strong. That's the operative text. Those arguments are strong. But while the meaning of the phrase, an exchange established by the state, may seem plain when viewed in isolation, such a reading turns out to be untenable in light of the statute, in, in light of the statute as a whole. In this instance, the context and structure of the act compel us to depart from what would otherwise be the most natural reading of the pertinent statutory phrase. End quote. By Roberts telling, the court, reading the statute as a whole, found the ACA was ambiguous and then resolve that ambiguity in the favor of the government because 
it was implausible that Congress would intend to give states the power to destroy coverage for 10 million people. Never mind that the court acknowledged that Congress has always given states the power to destroy coverage for 50 million people simply by 50 million lower income people simply by refusing to participate in the Medicaid program. In reality, Roberts did exactly what he said the courts should not do. He cherry-picked snippets of text in legislative history that fit a predetermined understanding of the law while ignoring the full text in legislative history, which demonstrate that predetermined narrative as pure invention without any foundation whatsoever. To dispense with what he conceded was clear operative text. Robert first cherry-picked text. To argue that Congress must not have meant established by the state to mean what it says, Roberts isolated the act's definition of qualified individuals. This definition, which tells states how to run the exchanges they established, says a qualified individual must reside, quote, in the state that established the exchange. This definition has nothing to do with tax credits. It just happens to use the word established and state and exchange all in the same sentence. Robert seizes on that to argue that if Congress intended for those words to mean what everyone knows they mean, then federal exchanges would have no qualified individuals because no one can reside in the state that established the exchange if the state did not establish the exchange. And it would be an absurdity to have a federal uh, exchange with no qualified individuals in it, so those words must not mean what everyone knows they mean. This, cherry, this is cherry picking because two sections later, the ACA expressly gives the HHS secretary the authority to write parallel rules that work for federal exchanges. A parallel definition of qualified individuals, something along the lines of that reside in the state uh, served by the exchange or where the secretary established the exchange. The Roberts also cherry picked context. He said that Congress must have intended to offer premium subsidies in federal exchanges because it is implausible that Congress would have permitted the adverse selection that would result if the ACA's pre-existing conditions provisions took effect without, subs without subsidies being available to mitigate the adverse selection that would result. Yes, Robert acknowledged, Congress did exactly that in the Class Act, another title entitlement program Congress created under the ACA, but Roberts wrote the Class Act doesn't count because it was a long-term care insurance program, not a health insurance program. So much for reading the statute as a whole. Even worse, Roberts completely ignored that beginning in September 2010, Congress did impose the ACA's pre-existing condition provisions on health insurance for children without any premium subsidies to combat the resulting adverse selection. Here, Roberts is not just cherry picking, but making claims about the ACA and how Congress operates that are just demonstrably false. Congress did allow for massive adverse selection in, in health insurance markets. The markets for child-only insurance either contracted or completely collapsed in two-thirds of the states before those provisions even took effect. So Congress clearly had a tolerance for adverse selection. Roberts also cherry-picked congressional purposes. Throughout the ACA, Congress used financial incentives to induce states to implement portions of the act. It even created a, a separate financial incentive to encourage states to establish exchanges. Because state implementation was a clear congressional purpose, as Roberts himself acknowledged in NFIB. But here, Roberts pretended that Congress's sole purpose was to have all three legs of the uh, uh, so-called three-legged stool of the ACA's regulatory scheme in place at all times. Uh, completely ignoring uh, what he has acknowledged as it was another congressional purpose. And finally, Roberts cherry-picked legislative history. Uh, in his congressional, uh, in, in his confirmation hearing before Congress, Robert, the, the uh, uh, aspiring Chief Justice said that you have to be very careful when selecting legislative history uh, because not all legislative history is created equal. 
In his opinion, Roberts cited testimony presented by non-members of Congress, testimony provided to Congress by non-members of Congress that supports what he saw as Congress's plan, but ignored that the members of Congress who received that testimony on the Senate's Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, indeed, Senators who helped write the ACA also advanced another comprehensive bill that even the government agrees did condition exchange subsidies on state cooperation. By effectuating, quote, what we see as Congress's plan, as Roberts put it, rather than the actual plan Congress enacted into law, the court expanded the ACA and the powers that Congress gave the IRS in a manner that Congress never had the votes to enact. The court went beyond mere rendering to create powers for the IRS. It went beyond attempted interpretation of, legisl of legislation to engage in the art of legislation. The court played not the role of the umpire who calls balls and strikes, but the role of an umpire who, pit who calls pitches based on what he sees as the pitcher's plan. This is the problem with a purposivist approach to statutory interpretation. Interpreting a statute according to what judges believe was Congress's plan rather than the express plan Congress lays out in statute can, in extreme cases, transfer the power of the purse and the power of the tax from, pe from the people's elected representatives to unelected judges and unelected government bureaucrats. And unfortunately, King is one of those extreme cases. Now, in fairness, we have to correct a claim made by Justice Scalia in dissent. Justice Scalia, writing for a, a, a three-judge minority, three-justice minority, said that, uh, the, quote, the overriding principle of the present court is that the Affordable Care Act must be saved. That's actually not true. If it were true, the court would not have jettisoned statutory text like established by the state or the definition of state that Congress wrote into law or other parts of the ACA. The fact that the court did these things means its overriding principle is not to preserve the ACA, which imposed these limits on the IRS's powers. It is closer to the truth to say that the overriding principle of the present court is to preserve and expand those powers in order to preserve the political victory won by those who supported enactment of the ACA. In NFIB, Chief Justice Roberts told us it is not the court's job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. King tells us, that a majority of the court does see it as the court's job to protect certain federal powers from the people. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Next, we'll hear from uh, Michael's partner in crime, Jonathan Adler, who is the Johann Verhage Memorial Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Business Law and Regulation at Case Western Reserve University Law School. He's also a senior fellow at the Property and Environmental Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, and serves on the editorial board of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before and during law school, John directed the Competitive Enterprise Institute's Environmental Studies program. And when I interned at CEI 17 years ago, yikes, uh, I got to use his office while he was at Perk in Montana for the summer. Uh, John will be focusing not on King v. Burwell, however, he might have a few words about it, but he will be focusing on Michigan v. EPA, about which Andrew Grossman contributed an article in this year's review. John. So now I know where all those things that were missing in my office went. Um, but thank you, Ilya. It's a pleasure to be back here. My Michael would, would correct you, though. We're partners in crime fighting. Uh, not partners in crime. We, are, we, we sought to stop the illegal implementation 
of the Affordable Care Act, uh, not to uh, engage in illegal acts of our own. Um, but it's always a pleasure to, to be back at Cato and to be here for Constitution Day. Um, I want to say a little bit about King in addition to talking about Michigan, uh, because in both cases deal with uh, the court's approach, an evolving approach to how it reviews agency action. And I think in that regard, it, it is worth drawing uh, some connections. Um, as, as Michael already talked about, King is important in terms of healthcare policy, uh, important for what it tells us about statutory interpretation, um, but it also has some implications for administrative law and how we see uh, the court's role in policing the delegation of authority to regulatory agencies. Uh, King is also, uh, in some respects, a double loss for Justice Scalia in terms of uh, two of the projects that he has sought to pursue as a justice on the court. As Michael already described, uh, King was a setback for Justice Scalia's project to encourage the court to use more textualist analysis when interpreting statutes and examining Congress's handiwork. It was also a setback for S Justice Scalia insofar as it uh, carved out or, or further solidified a carve-out uh, to the Chevron Doctrine and deference to agencies uh, as something else that has been a project of Justice Scalia's since he's been on the court. Traditionally, when the court looks at a statute uh, under what we call the Chevron Doctrine, the court's view has been that if the statute is ambiguous, the court defers to the agency that is entrusted with implementing that statute on in terms of how that statute should be interpreted. And that means that if the agency adopts an interpretation that is different than the one the court would have chosen, that's OK. The standard the court applies under the Chevron Doctrine is not whether the agency has adopted the best interpretation of the statute, but if the statute is ambiguous, merely has the agency adopted a permissible one. And Justice Scalia's argument for quite some time has been is that once that threshold determination of ambiguity has been made, agencies should be given a wide berth, and the subject matter of the question uh, does not matter. And that was an argument that Justice Scalia made uh, in the majority just a few years ago in a case called uh, Arlington versus FCC. In King, that is not the approach that Chief Justice Roberts adopted. Chief Justice Roberts, early on in the opinion, says, well, established by the state may seem clear to lay people may seem clear to people that simply picked up the relevant portions of the statute, but in fact is ambiguous. And what a lawyer might have expected to come next is, therefore, the government wins because we will defer to the IRS's interpretation of the statute as a permissible construction of an ambiguous phrase or an ambiguous provision. But instead, Chief Justice Roberts announced that this is not a case for the IRS. There is no cause for deference to the IRS. While upholding the federal government's interpretation of the statute, Chief Justice Roberts made clear it was not on grounds of deference, but rather the court was assuming for itself the job of figuring out what the best interpretation of the, of the allegedly ambiguous language would be. Chief Justice Roberts essentially embraced what is often referred to as the major question doctrine, the idea that there are some questions that are so large, so important, of such great economic and political significance that courts should not 
allow agencies to resolve them. The underlying idea being that Chevron rests on a assumption, perhaps even a fiction of delegation. That is, Chevron is based on the idea that agencies get deference because Congress has delegated to the agency the power to resolve ambiguities and to make the discretionary policy choices that are often necessary when implementing a statute, but that when the question is really large, when it's billions of dollars in tax credits to citizens in three dozen states, that's not the sort of question we can assume that Congress handed over to an agency. And perhaps, and this is an argument that, that I've made elsewhere, perhaps there are even constitutional reasons why we should be really wary of the idea that Congress could have uh, uh, delegated a question of such magnitude to an agency. And that's what Roberts did in King. Um, he said that uh, the court would not uh, defer to the IRS's interpretation. Uh, and this has, uh, and this is a, a position that, that Roberts had advanced relatively recently in his dissent in the Arlington case, uh, in which he thought courts should not defer to agency uh, interpretations of provisions that relate to the scope of their own jurisdiction. Uh, this has a couple of consequences. Um, one uh, is it means that no future IRS can reverse this interpretation of the Affordable Care Act uh, because uh, the court has uh, determined what the meaning of the, the provisions are. Um, secondly, it had the interesting effect of allowing the court to sidestep what, in my view, was a clear example of a lack of reasoned decision-making in promulgating the original IRS rule. When the IRS promulgated its regulation authorizing tax credits and federal exchanges, even though objections to that interpretation had been raised, it offered no legal analysis. It offered no uh, re substantive response to any of those objections. It instead offered a single paragraph that was conclusory and cursory, that cited no statutory language, no legislative history, or any other authority for adopting the interpretation that it did. Under traditional standards of administrative law, uh, this would have easily uh, uh, fell fallen as an example of, of an agency adopting a rule without reasoned decision making. But by not uh, deferring to the agency, the court didn't even need to consider whether the agency had engaged in such decision making because it was merely interpreting the statute uh, for itself. Going forward, this is something that we should, uh, this, this uh, adoption of the major question doctrine is something we should pay attention to because it has significant implications for the regulatory state. Um, if this, the King opinion represents the fact that six justices actually believe that the court should police the bounds of delegations of regulatory authority and interpretive authority. That could be quite significant. I'm certainly hopeful that it means that, uh, but I am also skeptical because while Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy had dissented in Arlington and, in, and had previously joined opinions calling for the court to be somewhat circumspect about uh, the delegation of interpretive authority, the other four justices in the King majority had all joined Justice Scalia in the Arlington case and in prior decisions have, sh have shown no concern about the breadth of delegations that agencies are given. Uh, and so we will just simply have to see what, what King augurs in that regard. Michigan is also uh, in some respects represents a potential curtailment of the scope of discretion and authority that agencies are given. It's another case in which many commentators expected, myself included, uh, the court to be quite deferential uh, to the agency uh, involved. It 
concerned a provision of the Clean Air Act, which is not very often invoked. It in, uh, dealt with language that certainly seems to be potentially ambiguous and involved the sort of discretionary judgment that agencies make all the time and that which courts rarely see the need to second guess. It was a case I should, should note, I certainly didn't expect the court to even take uh, to grant certiorari on, and prior to the oral argument was not a case I expected the agency to lose. Uh, but it did, and it lost in a potentially significant way. The, the, uh, and, I, and I commend Andrew Grossman's essay in, in the Cato Supreme Court Review, uh, which uh, addresses some of these points in, in more detail and, and makes them quite clear. But just to, to summarize what was the discrete issue, what the court or the EPA had, had maintained that under the Clean Air Act, it was appropriate and necessary, and that's the, the, the relevant phrase, to regulate mercury emissions from power plants. Uh, EPA thought that because mercury emissions uh, uh, persist and there are ways of controlling those emissions and that mercury is linked to various health effects, that it would be appropriate to impose further controls on power plants and indeed necessary to do so because of the potential health effects of mercury emissions. And EPA's view was it did not need to consider the costs of such regulation in making this determination. It did not need to consider the fact that by its own estimates, it would cost nearly $10 billion, with a B dollars to implement uh, the requisite controls. EPA based this judgment on two conclusions that it made uh, in, in the rulemaking process. One, that there was no provision in the relevant parts of the Clean Air Act expressly telling the agency to consider costs. And there are many other provisions in the Clean Air Act which do tell the EPA that costs must be part of its analysis. And that secondly, insofar as the phrase appropriate and necessary might be somewhat ambiguous, that it was a permissible interpretation by the agency to read the word appropriate to focus on things like uh, whether or not it's possible to control the emissions and not on, on whether or not it is particularly costly, let alone whether or not uh, the costs would be exceeded by the benefits. Supreme Court said no dice. Uh, it said that in an opinion by Justice Scalia that handed out at the very end of the term uh, that the court said both that an agency could not conclude that something is appropriate without paying at least some attention to what it costs. But perhaps more significantly, Scalia's opinion said that it is simply unreasonable it is not reasoned decision making for an agency to undertake an action without some awareness of the costs of that action uh, unless Congress has expressly precluded the agency from considering costs. For those of you that focus on administrative law, Scalia's opinion essentially says that the requirement of a state, the State Farm decision that agencies always engage in reasoned decision making and non-arbitrary decision making that that necessarily includes a presumption that there is some consideration of costs in the context of making a regulatory decision. Um, this is significant in a for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one is uh, the court had never said this before. In fact, there are opinions where the court seemed to have said in the past that unless the agency is required to consider costs, uh, it is appropriate for the, for the agency uh, to exclude them. The last time the court had addressed this sort of question was in a case called Entergy in 2009, where the question before the court was not whether the agency 
also the EPA, was required to consider costs, but rather whether it was permissible for the agency to consider costs if the statute didn't require it. And in that case, six justices had said basically that it was that the agency was allowed to consider costs. Uh, three justices took the position that no, unless the agency was required to look at costs, it shouldn't look at them uh, at all. In Michigan, not a single justice was willing to stake out that position. Justice Kagan, writing for four justices, argued that that EPA was not required to consider costs at the threshold of deciding whether it was appropriate to regulate, but, but only because, or in part because, the agency would, in fact, consider costs when deciding what types of controls power plants would have to adopt uh, to uh, reduce mercury emissions. In fact, Justice Kagan said quite explicitly in her opinion, that of course it would be arbitrary. Of course it would be unreasonable for an agency to never look at the costs of the actions it was considering. That, but that the agency merely should have some discretion within the statutory framework to decide at what point costs should enter into its calculus. That's a dramatic shift. Uh, one looks at relevant decisions about uh, the consideration of costs in agency decision making. We had never seen a, a time before where not a single justice would be willing to say that costs should be irrelevant unless Congress said so expressly. This uh, may or may not actually affect, uh, this, this decision did not say that agencies must engage in a full cost benefit analysis. It did not say much about what sort of cost analysis agencies uh, should engage in, but it is still quite significant. Uh, merely requiring agencies to look at costs and to acknowledge costs means that agencies will be uh, more accountable and more transparent in their decision making. As we know from a wide range of contexts, perhaps the most prominent being the implementation of the National uh, Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, merely requiring agencies to look at and consider the adverse consequences of what they do disciplines agency behavior. For a whole host of political reasons, agencies don't like to tell the world that they're going to do something that might hurt somebody. The Bureau of Reclamation or doesn't like to say it's going to build a dam that might kill fish. Or the National Highway Transportation and Safety Administration doesn't like to acknowledge that, that increasing CAFE standards may result in more highway fatalities. And the EPA, even if costs is not, are not what it tends to focus on, doesn't like to say, oh yeah, by the way, Reducing mercury emissions may cost $9.6 billion. The direct benefits from mercury emissions will only be four to six million. Um, that's not something EPA likes to acknowledge, likes to say, not something it likes to have to go before Congress to defend. So merely requiring this acknowledgement can affect agency behavior. It also is likely to have a particular effect on independent agencies because independent agencies up until now had not been required to look at costs under the relevant executive orders. Uh, uh, no administration had really sought to force independent agencies to comply with the, the executive orders going back to the Reagan administration requiring consideration of costs. The court has essentially said, in a, we, this is part of reasoned decision making. You've got to do it. And so um, uh, it could have its greatest effect on independent agencies that have had more flexibility than executive branch agencies. Um, I, I also think it is, it is possible that this will encourage courts to engage in somewhat greater scrutiny of the type of cost analyses that agencies engage in. Not because the court required that, but, but because it's only natural for a court when reviewing an agency action 
when an agency says we have costs here and benefits down here, a court's going to notice that, and a court's going to want some explanation of how, for example, a, dispar a significant disparity in, in costs versus benefits can be justified. It doesn't mean that agencies are going to be held to a cost-benefit requirement, but I think it does mean that uh, courts could look uh, under the hood a bit more in the rulemaking process. And just to use the Mercury Rule as an example, EPA said $9.6 billion in costs, um, 37 to $90 billion in benefits, only four to six million of which actually come from mercury reductions. The rest are what we refer to as co-benefits, other benefits that result from imposing controls on mercury emissions. Well, what are those benefits? Well, most of those benefits come from reducing particulate matter. And particulate matter is already regulated under the Clean Air Act. In fact, the EPA is already required to regulate particulate matter so to those levels that, which are necessary to protect the public health with an adequate margin of safety. That is, if the EPA is doing its job with regard to particulate matter, there shouldn't be many additional benefits to gain from reducing it further because all the health benefits that can be gained, EPA is statutorily mandated to achieve through other provisions. In a, a court hearing that, we could certainly imagine deciding that it is arbitrary and capricious to count as benefits and to justify a rule on benefits that are really attributable to other regulatory programs, in fact, that are required by other regulatory programs. Uh, but whether, in fact, courts take this invitation to look under uh, the hood is something that we will have to see. Uh, but for now, we can, we can at least take some satisfaction that agencies can't ignore costs unless Congress tells them to do so or tells them to ignore costs, agencies must consider costs as part of reasoned decision making. And that's perhaps the most significant part of Michigan. Uh, one of the kind of quirky aspects of that Michigan case was that by some estimations, uh, given the amount of mercury that's already uh, before this EPA rule was required to be scrubbed from emissions for the rule to produce uh, any benefits, uh, it would basically have to be uh, uh, pregnant women who eating pounds and pounds of uh, fish in certain affected areas per day. Uh, and so uh, we mentioned this in, in Cato's brief in the case, and that was uh, described as uh, by one wag as the case of the ravenous fisherwoman. Uh, well, anyhow, turning from that to uh, another pescatarian dilemma, we have John Malcolm, who is the director of the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese Center for uh, Legal and Judicial Studies. In addition to his duties at Heritage, John is chairman of the Criminal Law Practice Group of the Federalist Society and serves on the board of Boys Town in Washington, D.C. He's really had a, a fascinating career, and I didn't know half of this stuff until I really focused on your bio, John. Uh, general counsel at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, teaching at Pepperdine Law School, executive vice president and director of worldwide anti-piracy operations for the Motion Picture Association of America, deputy assistant attorney general in the DOJ's criminal division, private practice, uh, and uh, he was a, uh, an AUSA, an assistant U.S. attorney. Anyhow, John will be talking to us about the one that got away, a real fishtail. Thank you, Ilya, and I want to thank Cato for inviting me here. Well, so these guys are talking about crime fighting, and I'm going to talk about crime. So I can assure you that the following is not a trick question. Is there a connection between undersized red grouper and the disgraced company Enron? Well, it turns out that the answer to that question is yes. 
And that connection came within one vote of landing John Yates in federal prison. So the Yates case began on October 23rd of 2007 when John Jones, uh, a field officer with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, boarded the Miss Katie, which was a commercial fishing vessel under the control of John Yates and his small crew. John uh, Jones, who had been deputized to, uh, as a federal agent to enforce federal fisheries laws, spotted three red grouper that appeared to him to be undersized and proceeded to spend the next several hours inspecting all of the fish in the Miss Katie's hole. That was over 3,000 fish. He ultimately concluded that there were 72 undersized grouper that measured between 18 and 3 quarters inches and 19 and 3 quarters inches, which was below the 20-inch limit. Ironically, by the way, the rules with respect to undersized grouper have now been changed. And the new limit is 18 inches. So if Yates had been inspected actually on the day he was indicted, and certainly if he'd been inspected today, all of his fish would have been in the clear. But that's a story for another day. Now, harvesting undersized grouper is not a crime. But it is a civil infraction that can subject you to a $500 fine and can possibly get your, uh, your fishing license suspended. Jones ordered um, Yates to put those 72 fish into a separate wooden crate, but he neglected to seal the crate. And he told Yates to leave them there until the Miss Katie returned uh, to port. Once the ship returned to port a few days later, Jones inspected the fish again and discovered, much to his horror, that now there were only 69 fish that were undersized. And they appeared to be much closer to the 20-inch limit than the fish he had inspected at sea. Well, being a Cracker Jack federal investigator, Jones eventually got one of the crew members to admit that Yates had ordered him to throw the original 72 fish overboard and to replace them with other fish. Well, that simply couldn't be tolerated. So what was the government going to do in response to this perfidy? Well, naturally, a federal prosecutor ended up charging Yates with three felony counts. The first charge was a violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1001. It has, carries a potential penalty of five years. And that was for lying to a federal officer by falsely stating that the fish that Jones had inspected on the dock were the same fish that he had inspected at sea. The second charge, a violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 2232, uh, also carries a potential five-year uh, penalty. And that was uh, for throwing the grouper overboard in order to prevent the government from taking possession of them. So it's a form of an obstruction of justice statute. The third charge was 18 U.S.C. Section 1519. That is known as the Sarbanes-Oxley anti-shredding provision. And that carried a potential penalty of 20 years for destroying, concealing, and covering up the undersized grouper with the intent to impede, obstruct, and influence the investigation and proper administration of fishing regulations. Now, the Sarbanes-Oxley anti-shredding provision had been enacted in the wake of the Enron fiasco when it was discovered that Arthur Anderson employees had spent approximately two and a half weeks engaging in an infamous shredding party, destroying Enron documents, email systems, hard drives, whatever they could get their hands on to cover up Enron's uh, misdeeds in anticipation of a government investigation. Shredding parties stopped the moment a subpoena 
was issued. And one of the problems that emerged during the Arthur Anderson uh, trial, in fact, was the fact that existing obstruction of justice laws did not cover the destruction, alteration, or fabrication of documents prior to the initiation of an investigation. And another problem that came to light is that existing obstruction of justice laws made it a crime to persuade others to destroy evidence, but not to destroy evidence yourself. So Congress ended up passing a law making it a crime, again, subject to a potential 20-year penalty, to knowingly alter, destroy, mutilate, conceal, cover up, falsify, or make a false entry in any record, document, or tangible object with the intent to impede, obstruct, or influence the investigation or proper administration of any matter within the jurisdiction of any department or agency of the United States or in contemplation thereof. So, of course, a fish is a tangible object. So, quite naturally, the feds decided to charge John Yates with violating this statute, effectively turning what had been a civil infraction into a potential 20-year felony. Now, John Yates went to trial, and he was acquitted of the false statement charge, but he was convicted of the two obstruction of justice charges. The guideline range called for a sentence between 21 and 27 months, and John Yates was sentenced to 30 days in prison. After his conviction, Yates sought certiorari, challenging his conviction under the 20-year obstruction statute, but not under the five-year obstruction statute, and the court decided to hear the case. But I think it can fairly be asked, why? After all, Yates was only challenging his conviction. He wasn't challenging his conviction under the five-year statute. And he had received a sentence that was well below both the statutory maximum and the guideline range. And of course, it was highly unlikely that this bizarre fact pattern uh, was going to result in somebody being charged in the future for something similar. I think the answer to why the court decided to hear this case has a lot to do with fear of governmental overreaching in the area of criminal law and a concern that overly aggressive interpretations of federal law can give the government an unfair leverage in plea negotiations and can also be unfair in terms of providing adequate notice to average citizens about when their conduct crosses the line and becomes a crime. John Yates prevailed before the United States Supreme Court, but barely. Justice Ginsburg wrote the plurality opinion that was joined by the Chief Justice and Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, and Justice Alito wrote a separate concurring opinion providing the critical fifth vote for Yates. Those five justices placed their reliance on two rules of statutory construction, a nocitor associus and a justum generis. The former instructs that when words grouped in a list uh, should be given a related meaning to each other. And the latter instructs that when vague words in a statute are followed by specific words, the general words should be construed to embrace only objects that are similar in nature to those objects that were delineated through specific words. In this case, the plurality and the concurrence concluded that the term tangible object in a statute with such company as record and document made it highly unlikely that Congress meant for that term to apply to fish. They also said that it is very hard to envision, while one can certainly destroy, mutilate, uh, conceal, or cover up a fish, it is very hard to envision falsifying or making a false entry uh, into a fish. Uh, they also 
uh, said that they considered it highly unlikely that Congress would pass a 20-year obstruction of justice statute that would completely subsume the five-year construction of justice, obstruction of justice statute that Yates had also been charged with. And they, therefore, uh, decided to give a limiting construction to the term tangible object in the anti-shredding provision. And the plurality was prepared to even go further and say, if necessary, the rule of lenity uh, ought to apply and the tie would go to Yates. Now, the dissent by Justice Kagan, which was joined by Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Kennedy, they were having none of it. To her, a tangible object is an object that is tangible in all of its applications, and that would include a fish. Now, that's a bit difficult to take from a justice who was not prepared to rely on the seeming lack of ambiguity when considering the statutory phrase established by the state or the constitutional phrase in the Arizona legislature shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But there you are. She did not believe that uh, the statute contained an ambiguity and chided the other justices for reading the statute in such a way as to create an ambiguity. That's another view that was a bit tough to take from her. Now, Justice Kagan believes that she knows the real reason why the plurality and the concurrence, Justice Alito, voted to overturn uh, Yates's conviction. She said, quote, overcriminalization, it was overcriminalization and excessive punishment in the US code. And while the dissenters would have affirmed Yates's conviction, uh, Justice Kagan readily acknowledged that the anti-shredding provision is, quote, is a bad law, too broad and undifferentiated, with too high maximum penalties, which give prosecutors too much leverage and sentencers too much discretion. Moreover, she stated that this statute was unfortunately not an outlier, but an emblem of a deeper pathology in the federal criminal code. I think she's on to something. During the oral argument, several of the justice, justices expressed great concern about prosecutorial overreaching. Justice Scalia wondered aloud whether the prosecutor in the Yates case was indeed the same person uh, who had prosecuted Carol Ann Bond. As Ilya told you, that was a case from a couple of terms ago in which a woman tried to do in or harm, ended up causing trivial harm, a finger burn, uh, to her former uh, best friend who had an affair and become impregnated by Bond's husband. And she ended up being prosecuted under, you guessed it, the Chemical Weapons Implementation Act, which most people thought had been reserved for terrorists who would use chemical, biological, and neurological uh, weapons against an unsuspecting public, such as the doomsday cult Om Shinrikyo, uh, which in 1995 let loose sarin gas on the Tokyo subway system. Justice Scalia was not pleased during oral argument to hear that the customary practice of federal prosecutors is to charge, quote, the most serious offense that is consistent with the nature of the defendant's conduct and that is likely to result in a sustainable conviction. When the government's lawyer stated that the government does not prosecute, of course, every fish disposal case, Chief Justice Roberts was very quick to retort. But the point is that you could and that once you can, every time you get somebody who is throwing fish overboard, you can go to him and say, look, if we prosecute you, you're facing 20 years. So why don't you plead down to one year or something like that? It's an extraordinary leverage that the broadest interpretation of this statute would give federal prosecutors. Precisely so. In my view, the Yates case should be read along with not only the Bond case from a couple of terms ago, but from a couple of other cases this term, the Alanis case, which was the true threats case, the McFadden case, uh, which was the drug analog case, and I suppose you could also add the Johnson case, which dealt with the residual clause of the Armed Career Criminal, Armed Career Criminal Act. 
these cases, I believe, stand generally for the proposition that the emphasis in criminal cases must remain on the intent of the accused, even when he engages in conduct that appears objectively unreasonable, and that the court will not allow the government to stretch too far in how aggressively it interprets the reach of criminal statutes, especially when your average citizen could not reasonably have anticipated that such an interpretation would encompass what most of us would view as pretty benign conduct. Thank you very much. We're going to open it up for questions and answers to the audience in a moment. And indeed, those of you following along online can tweet your questions to me, hashtag CatoSCR15. Um, and I'm at iShapiro. Um, but do any of the panelists have something to say to each other or about each other? <laughs> well, you know, I guess I'll say this. I was, I was listening to, to Michael and Jonathan's uh, uh, comments, and I was con contrasting it to the Yates case. and I. You know, I, I do think that the justices do view criminal statutes differently and, and will cut the government less slack, although there's certainly plenty of cases in which the justices have cut the, the government broad uh, slack in terms of interpreting uh, cases. I mean, I guess I was despondent in terms of sitting there thinking that justices will cite things like strict construction and not rely on legislative history and you know, stick to the wording of a statute unless they really don't feel like doing so. And if they really don't feel like doing so, they will say whatever it is that they want to say to create ambiguity and reach the result that they want. Of course, uh, of course, Scalia called uh, the majority opinion uh, in, in King interpretive jiggery-pokery. And um, I was actually in Savannah, Georgia two weeks ago. You'll see where this is going in a second. Um, there was a, 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 a brewery uh, called the Moon River Brewing Company that I, I recommend. Good, good variety of uh, beverages there. But one of them is the jiggery-pokery has this very interesting description of it, uh, English-style uh, hops and Belgian-style ale and all of these things, although not, of course, using foreign law. This is be, you know, before the revolution when we were, still had the common English. And anyway, all of this thing. Uh, but the jiggery-pokery at, at Moon River Brewing Company, I tweeted this out. I believe the Federal Society is going to have a keg of it at, at its next uh, Christmas party. I, was gonna, I want to say a little bit about interpretation in King versus Yates, um, because it is, it is interesting that... Um, uh, two of the three dissenters in King also dissented in Yates. And I, I think there's some reason for that in the sense that generally, if, if one's a textualist, then one recognizes that Congress not only can make stupid laws, it can make unjust laws. Um, but I do think it's worth noting that the nature of the interpretive question in a case like Yates and the nature of the interpretive question in, in, in King are actually uh, quite different in, in a very important way. Um, uh, that's even setting aside the rule of lenity issues, which I think uh, are important when you're talking about a criminal law. In Yates, you have a statute, like many statutes, that talk about uh, any of a class of things being covered by the statute. So in this case, it's, it's any uh, record document or tangible object. Um, and there is often a, a, a bit of residual ambiguity about the universe to which that word any applies. Um, is it just those uh, uh, records, documents, and tangible objects that have to do with the subject matter of the statute, or is it literally anything tangible anywhere? Um, and in, in language, we see this sort of thing a lot, um, where we know that there has to be a universe of objects, 
that is fully covered by the language. And we know that they have to be tangible, right? So this is not talking about ethereal vapors. It's not talking about gases. It's talking about tangible objects. And there may be some room uh, as a result of other uh, textual clues, as a result of, of traditional canons of construction, perhaps even as a result of the rule of lenity, to view that the universe of, of objects covered is not all of those in existence in the world. What's radically different about what the majority does in uh, King is not to say, well, gosh, it says exchange, and we don't know if exchange means state exchange or federal exchange or any. It says, no, we have exchange established by the state, and we're going to say that means not even just exchange established by the state, exchange established by the state under Section 1311, and say that that applies to an exchange established by the federal government under Section 1321 when state is actually expressly defined to exclude the federal government. And so for Yates to be, and I, I have mixed feelings about the Yates opinion, but for Yates to be equivalent um, uh, to King, uh, Yates would have had to, to conclude that someone could be prosecuted not merely for destroying a tangible object, but for destroying, say, a gas that could be evidence of a crime, right? Clearing a room of, of, a, of an odor or a smell um, that was evidence of a crime, because that would mean applying it not merely to tangible objects, but to other things that, like tangible objects, could be evidence of a crime. And so I just thought it's worth noting that there is this, this uh, important distinction. And courts often do what the Yates court did. Um, uh, there's a, a brief um, that was amicus brief that was filed by some academics in King that tried to show lots of examples of, of interpretive flexibility. Uh, and they give lots of examples that are a lot like Yates. Where, you, where the word any plays a, a key role. Uh, what they do not find uh, any examples of uh, is, where, is where a statute says um, A or A plus B plus C, and that that is read to be interpreted as D plus E plus F, which is, in fact, what the court did in King. All right, questions from the audience. Please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone and uh, say your name and any affiliation you may have. Right here out front, our Simon lecturer. I'm Steve Calabresi from Northwestern University School of Law. Uh, I just wondered whether the three of you have an opinion about whether Chief Justice Roberts has any consistent approach to statutory interpretation across different cases. Um, Scalia and Thomas have argued for originalism. They've tried, I think, fairly hard to adhere to it. Perhaps sometimes they've failed. It seems to me that Roberts's opinions are structural or textual or doctrinal or refer to original history somewhat haphazardly, and I can't discern a unifying trend in Roberts's jurisprudence. Do any of you see a unifying trend? Prior to this term, I would have said that, that um, Roberts shows a, a tendency to engage in uh, constitutional avoidance and to use the canon of, of interpretation that statutes should be construed so as to avoid difficult constitutional questions quite aggressively. Right? And so we see that in the first Voting Rights Act case. We see that in Bond. Um, if we believe press reports about um, uh, the original opinions in Citizens United before its re-argument, there are reports at least that he had tried to do that in Citizens United to stretch the text to argue that the video in question wasn't covered by the statute, even though the statute pretty clearly covered uh, that video. Um, 
And, and given his, his stated preference for what we might characterize as a minimalist approach to judging generally, one could, under, could see why constitutional avoidance would be something that, that he would be amenable to. Um, King doesn't fit that mold. Um, and he's also joined some other opinions, uh, EME Homer, which uh, the cross-air pollution case from a term or two ago, um, uh, the Yates majority, where um, uh, uh, he just seems in general to view text as, as somewhat flexible and that it, it uh, and, and, a, and a willingness to stretch it quite aggressively to achieve some other end. Now, precisely what that end is, if it's not constitutional avoidance, is it some, it might be some conception of rationality in the law. It also might reflect a fairly jaded view of legislative craftsmanship. Right? I mean, it, it would, it would, it's certainly, it's certainly reasonable to believe that Congress does not do the, the job or as good a job at drafting statutes as we would like it to. And one could understand why a jurist might then say, okay, I can't hold them to the words they put onto paper because they're just so bad at it. I will instead not only avoid constitutional problems, but also avoid statutes that don't just, that seem just not to make sense. I guess, so I, guess I think that's, that's, the thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm just trying to describe it. I'm not trying to say it's, it's, I'm not particularly sympathetic to that approach, but after this term, that, that's the direction that I'd go in in terms of trying to characterize what he does. I, I think that's right. I, you know, I guess I would just add to that perhaps I think it's obvious everybody here, which is that that rarely works because when you engage in constitutional avoidance, you are in fact making uh, a choice about what the Congress's taxing power is in the case of Annabai B versus Valius. And certainly when you get into the realm of rewriting statutes, you may be avoiding one constitutional problem, but you are certainly treading on separations of powers and you are certainly affecting the liberty interests of those of us who are affected by that statute. So calling something constitutional avoidance you know, you may get through door number one, but door number two is right there. It can cause all sorts of mischief. Uh, and if I had to, um, I think I'd choose a different word from, uh, or a different term uh, from constitutional avoidance. It's, to my mind, it seems that uh, if, if I tried to put a, uh, a label on the Chief Justice's jurisprudence, it would be non-disruptive. Because he's, there's certainly that vein in a lot of his, his opinions. Then again, with uh, in a lot of free speech cases, he has been disruptive. So it sort of defies easy, easy description. Joel Mandelman, I'm an attorney here in Washington. I guess I've got two questions. First, in connection with what Mr. Cannon just said about the, <clears throat> the Chief Justice, would it be too cynical to simply say he doesn't want to get into the political firestorm, presumably, that would have occurred if the court had thrown out Obamacare or thrown it out in King versus Burwell, and he's just determined, whatever the cost to intellectual integrity, to avoid ever having to go down that road because he just, for whatever reason, doesn't want to deal with that kind of a headache. Yeah, John That's Roberts, what's really motivating him. I mean, uh, I'll, I can't help but jump in because I've been in print uh, critical of him for, for, for doing exactly that. I agree that that's probably what part of what he's trying to do. And it shows why we don't want judges playing politics or making those kinds of extra-legal uh, calculations because, I mean, do you think he's been successful in extracting the court from political debate and uh, heightening respect for its uh, 
judicial integrity and, and so forth. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, uh, mind-boggling. He's supposed to be the shrewd calculator, but um, when you're, you know, especially in NFIB, when uh, the court's decision was underwater as a matter of popularity, uh, King's a little different because nobody really understood what was going on. Um, it, it just shows that uh, he's, you know, too clever by half. John? Up until this term, there was kind of a pattern on this question um, in the sense that if you look at voting rights, first time around in Nabudno, he adopts an incredibly implausible interpretation of the statute to avoid the constitutional question. Congress doesn't change the statute. When it comes back in Shelby County, he drops the hammer. Uh, again, if press reports are accurate about Citizens United, he did something similar. He initially tried to draft a majority opinion um, that would avoid the constitutional question. Justice Kennedy refused to go along, according to these reports, wrote uh, a, a more aggressive opinion. When the other justices went along with Kennedy, Roberts relented, agreed to re-argument, and we got the Kennedy, you know, the full-throated constitutional opinion later that Roberts went along with. And in both the Voting Rights Act case and in, the, and in Citizens United, Roberts did not shirk from, in one case, writing or in, jo or in the other joining an opinion that provoked a firestorm. Um, uh, I think you see in other areas like relating to race, Roberts is, you know, his opinion and parents involved. Roberts is willing to uh, uh, write or join opinions that, that legal elites don't like. Um, so uh, something else, ha I think something else has to be in play. I do think it, it is a, a note, perhaps a notion of trying to keep courts out of uh, out of political fights, right? So you avoid declaring something unconstitutional because that at least leaves Congress greater latitude to fix the statute. Um, and hopefully then the court never has to resolve the constitutional question at all. And maybe in King his view was, well, m maybe we can send a signal that we just don't like Obamacare cases and they should all go away and we won't have to take any more, you know, lots of luck. Um, but I just don't think that that ultimately works because as is trendy to say in, in academic circles, there's a dialogue between the court and Congress. And, and, and if the court doesn't, um, or if court adopts a certain approach to interpreting Congress's handiwork, that affects what Congress does. And it doesn't result in Congress giving the court less to do. In many respects, it invites Congress to give the court more to do. So I mean, that, if that describes what Roberts is doing, he's gonna fail in achieving what he's trying to accomplish. I think uh, building on that one, uh, th there are also press accounts that after the initial vote in NFIB, uh, or during the initial vote in NFIB, Roberts voted to overturn the entire law. Right. And then at some point he changed his vote. I think this would fit with the non-disruptive narrative, if, if these accounts are correct, that would fit with the non-disruptive narrative. I mean, we're getting into criminology here, but maybe he cast the vote and then either had second thoughts or was lobbied by other justices or you know, influenced by... Um, by Pat Leahy, the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, going down to the Senate floor and saying this will affect the legacy of the court. Um, so anyway, that's, that's another uh, uh, piece, of, piece of data that might uh, uh, argue for the non-disruptive theory. Uh, Roger Pilon at Cato. Um, in, uh, to continue with this theme, uh, in your um, initial discussion of Chevron, John, you, um, you said this was not a case of deference uh, in the administrative law context, but surely it was a case of deference in a larger sense to, to congressional intent, uh, which ties in with the point that uh, Michael made 
that um, that uh, Scalia, Justice Scalia, had said that uh, one thing is clear that the the um, court must save the Affordable Care Act, and he said that's not correct. It must save the Affordable Care Act as Congress, as the court reads it. Uh, and so we really do have deference here in the, the worst sense, political deference, deference to uh, the, the courts, to Robert's understanding of what Congress uh, should have done. And so it is really a, uh, a political deference of the worst kind. Yeah, I mean, I would, agree, I, would, I would agree that it is a form of political deference. I mean, I would almost characterize it as, as abdication in the sense that um, uh, when we typically think of deference doctrines, we think of deferring to another branch or to an agency that has some claim to authority, uh, right? So under Chevron, you defer to the agency because the agency has a claim to authority, because, not merely because it's expert, not merely because it's part of the executive branch, but because Congress has actually delegated that authority to it. And so deference is, is occurring within that context. To merely say, well, gosh, um, were we to resolve this case this way, it could be messy, that could in inject the court into, into a political dispute, it could raise controversy. To me, that's not deference, it's abdication, right? The, the, the court, um, we, can, we can debate about the, 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 what the proper realm is or the range of cases in which the court should be asserting its authority to interpret the law and say what the law is. But um, for the court to not exercise that authority in, within that realm is not to defer, it's to abdicate. And so that's, that's the language that I would use. But I agree that, that there is this kind of uh, a view of kind of deferring to the political branches so that the court doesn't have to get its hands messy. But I think as you point out in your foreword, we, the reason we have a constitution, the reason we have Article Three conceived of the way we do is precisely because there are times in which the court is obligated to step in, obligated to render a judgment without regard for whether or not that's controversial, disruptive, whatever else. I mean, that, that's the, the point of the structure we have. I, I, don't, I don't like calling it deference to Congress, what, what Roberts did in King, because, well, I could call it deference to Congress if there are any evidence in either the statute or the legislative history that anyone in Congress ever spoke to the question presented and answered the question presented by saying, yes, we want tax credits in federal exchanges. That never happened, and I think that's one of the most underappreciated aspects of, of King v. Burwell is that uh, Jonathan and I have been uh, banging this drum since, uh, I guess it's four years now, since August of 2011, and in all that time and all the research that we've done and all the research that the government and its supporters have done, they've never found any time, anything where a member of Congress said any such thing about tax credits in federal exchanges under the ACA. So... So this is this is a this is a, a theory of congressional intent that's invented out of whole cloth, uh, and and so I don't I don't consider that uh, I don't I don't think what the chief justice did was defer to Congress. Um, he deferred to political pressure, which fits the uh, non-disruptive uh, theory. Uh, in Also in uh, the Cato Supreme Court Review, Jim Blumstein has an article on King v. Burwell. He says that uh, the court here didn't defer to Congress. It didn't uh, empower Congress. It disempowered Congress. And I would add that this deference to political pressure also disempowered states and disenfranchised millions of voters who oppose the Affordable Care Act. I mean, boy, I, I, 
talk about a vicious cycle. So Congress is going to write broad statutes that provide vague and broad delegation to agencies, and they'll sit there and say, well, if we went too far, the courts will stop us. The agencies are going to take this as far as they can in terms of providing whatever interpretation they want and even determining what their own jurisdiction is to decide these issues. And then it will go to a court, and a court will defer to the federal agency, and then they'll go to Congress and say, well, if Congress passed this law and meant to give this kind of a delegation, they must have intended it. It's going to be okay with us. So everybody in that entire circle ends up deferring to a federal agency, and we are essentially end up being run by federal agencies, and that's rather horrifying. To pass along some Kremlinology, and that's a very good phrase uh, given the age of our uh, Supreme Court at this point. Three of them will be 80 uh, uh, next year during the presidential election, um, and uh, uh, one more in late 70s. Uh, but I've talked to several former uh, Kennedy and Roberts clerks to try to understand perhaps what's going on here. Not ones that worked there this past term, uh, <coughs> but, but uh, earlier ones. Uh, and basically, each one tries to throw the other under the bus in the sense that, uh, well, why did Kennedy not write separately? Why did he provide the sixth vote? Well, he didn't in NFIB, right? He was one of the vigorous dissenters. Well, there was already a majority on the other side, and sometimes Kennedy just goes along, would rather not fight it, okay? Uh, now, you talk to the Kennedy clerks, uh, or you talk to the, 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 the Roberts clerks, and they say, well, Probably there was already a majority on the other side. Kennedy was the fifth vote, and Roberts rather would rather take that opinion for yeah. himself rather than either allow Kennedy to write some muddled statutory interpretation opinion or assign it to one of the liberal uh, justices that would give more expansive power under Chevron or what have you. So who knows? That's all uh, you know. You're, you're, that you're getting uh, uh, what you paid for, probably uh, even less, given that we charge uh, for admission here. But there you go. <laughs> Elon Werman, I'm also an attorney here in DC. I wanted to seize on Mr. Cannon's last uh, comment. So I just wanted uh, you to clarify for us, is your issue with King v. Burwell that Chief Justice Roberts deployed purposivism or a purposivist interpretation, or that he did it dishonestly, that he abused it? Because originalists routinely use purposivism. They deploy history, context, background principles of law uh, to arrive at the meaning of constitutional text. So should that be different for congressional enactments, if it's a matter of how language is interpreted, or is it just that when people, when justices have this power, they do it dishonestly to serve their ends? Well, certainly, I think that uh, if if the meaning of a you know the laws, the the statute that Congress passed that that survived bicameralism and presentment, and if the the meaning of those terms uh, is clear, then that's the law, and that's what you follow. Here, the, there's nothing unclear about the meaning of those terms. In order, f for the sake of time, I dropped out of my talk uh, my claim that one of, the, one of the really interesting, bizarre, great things about this case is that everyone knows what the statute says. Everyone knows. And uh, you know, the, the, the IRS knows what the statute says, which is why they dropped through an exchange established by the state out of their implementing regulations as soon as someone pointed out that, hey, there's no authorization in the law for tax credits and federal exchanges. It's because they knew what those words meant. They knew they presented an obstacle to them uh, to the, uh, or a threat to the survival of this law because it gave states the power that I'm, that I'm, talking, that I'm talking about here. So uh, the question is, uh, do I have a problem with, with purposivism, uh, if it overrides what everyone understands is the clear meaning of the statute, then yes, because then you're transferring the power of the purse, the power of uh, the power to tax, other enumerated powers from Congress. Uh, 
Congress's elected representatives to people who weren't elected. Um, and, you know, if, if you've got unclear terms, then you might have to uh, look to dictionaries to see what they meant, what those terms meant to the people who were putting them in place. If Congress didn't give you a definition, you know, I have, I have sympathy for that. But here there's not only do you not need to, not only is it, are the, were the, were the, was the operative text clear on its face, but there was even a definition in case anyone didn't know its statement. There, there's a definition uh, to, to, to clarify that state means uh, each of the 50 states in the District of Columbia, which the court conceded, excludes the federal government. Even if you don't know what established means, it doesn't even matter what established means because you know that whatever established means, these exchanges were established by states, and the statute provided that federal exchanges were established by the federal government, not by the states. So if I could just add, add really quickly to it, it is generally recognized in, in statutory interpretation that things like context and structure and the like are useful in resolving ambiguity and clarifying the meanings of terms. It is hard to find a case in which context, structure, other things are used not to clarify ambiguous terms, but as this opinion expressly does, to first create ambiguity and then to resolve the ambiguity in a way that not merely alters or, 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 or changes terms, but forces them to mean the exact opposite of what they do. In fact, under Robert's interpretation, or nothing. by his own account, the phrase established by the state means nothing in section 1401. And in footnote three of the opinion, he says, I'm not even going to look at the other places in the statute where that phrase is used, even though they might bear on this underlying question of whether or not this phrase actually means what it says. I mean, he just says, I'm not even going to look. And some of those provisions are provisions that are actually directly relevant to exchanges. So section 1311 includes a reference to established by the state. That makes no sense if it applies to the federal government too. And Robert says, I'm not even gonna look at it. So, so he uses contextualism in a way that is not, it has not traditionally been used. And then on top of that, uses it in a highly selective cherry-picked way. And in, the, and in our article, we, we point on other things. He takes a definition that is expressly conditional in the statute and says it's a universal definition that must always apply. That's simply false by the, by the, uh, as under the express terms of the U.S. Code. And then takes another definition that doesn't have any condition placed on it and treats it as if it can be conditional and ignored. I mean, it's, it's, is it because he didn't, wasn't aware of these other statutory provisions? Was it... You know, I wouldn't say it's dishonest, but it's definitely not the sort of approach to use of structure and context that we generally understand and accept as within the range of, of proper interpretation. And, if and I, we'll, if have I can to add. we'll have to leave it there. I have to okay. defer to our uh, program schedule. Uh, before we thank our speakers, I'll remind you that lunch is upstairs in the second floor uh, George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase. There are restrooms both on the first floor as you... Uh, uh, approach or go by the staircase and also on the second floor as you go towards lunch. Um, with that, let's uh, thank our speakers. We're adjourned for an hour. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.